What is the most precious thing that belonged to somebody else that you've ever been put in charge of? Now, clearly the answer to that is going to depend on your definition of the word precious, and I totally get that. But I do think, I want you to think about it in terms of something that is expensive. What's the most expensive thing that belonged to somebody else that you've ever been put in charge of? Maybe you got to borrow somebody's really fancy car. That would be pretty cool, you know? You just, it's, it's old, it's priceless now, it can't be replaced, they don't make those anymore. You got to borrow that and you were put in charge of it. Maybe it was a business that you were put in charge of managing for the owner and you were always eminently aware if I mess this up that person loses a lot of money okay maybe it was something like that maybe it's a precious heirloom that like you were moving at some point and somebody said hey I've got family in that town you're going to can you take this to them but be careful it's really it's it's irreplaceable this is precious to us something like that because the reason I'm asking is because that sort of responsibility weighs kind of heavy on a person You know, when you really think about it, the responsibility for that sort of thing weighs really heavy on us. And so it's kind of funny because like we had somebody house sitting for us last week while Caitlin and I were both gone for part of the week. And we don't really think about house sitting as like a big thing. It's just we ask somebody to come and stay in the house and watch it for us. But for that person... That's a lot of responsibility put on them. You did a good job, Haley. <laughs> that's a lot of responsibility because it's something that's very precious to us and it, you know, it costs a lot of money. You take that and you think about somebody watching your kids and that's even more precious to you. That's even more irreplaceable. And so that becomes an even greater responsibility. Haley, you also did a good job with that one. Thank you very much. But you do that sort of thing and you think about what you're putting on them. And in even something simple like being a pilot or a bus driver, like the responsibility of that starts to sink in as being pretty stinking serious. And so when you really think about it, a lot of everyday tasks, they actually involve us kind of stewarding something that belongs to somebody else. And it can be something that's very precious to that person. That, by the way, that word that I just used right there, stewarding, we don't use that word a whole lot unless we're going to be talking in church about money. Then we talk about stewardship. But really the concept is everywhere through the Bible, that anywhere that God has asked people to manage something that is his or that there's somebody that's asked to take care of somebody else's stuff, that's stewardship. You become the steward of that thing. And it's such an important concept. There's a there's a well-remembered but I think little understood story from 2 Kings chapter 6. And you don't need to be turning over there. It's not our main text for today. But 2 Kings chapter 6 is the story where one of the prophets makes an iron axe head float in water. Everybody remember that little miracle that happens there? Do you remember why it happened? There was a gentleman that was cutting down a tree with that axe. The axe head flew off. It fell in the water in a way he knew I will never be able to get in that water and find that. And his comment to the prophet of God was, oh no, I borrowed that. He was stewarding that thing that belonged to somebody else. And you say to yourself, it's just an axe. Surely they could make another one. Yes, probably. But a prophet of God did a miracle so that that stewardship requirement could be met. If it mattered so much with a little thing like an axe that was borrowed, how much more when God has given us something precious to him and important and told us this is mine and I want you to take good care of it. 
When you think about the church of Jesus Christ, you're thinking about the group of God's people. And basically, that's what's happened. We have been called, brothers and sisters, to steward the relationships that people have with each other and with God because we are part of His church. And that is a huge responsibility. And it's a responsibility that in order to do it correctly, we have to remember truly whose these people are. They do not belong to us, no matter what kind of position of leadership we get put over them. They do not belong to us. And they do not belong to us, no matter whether we think we have the better idea than God. They are ultimately God's people, His sheep, that we are there to lead in a direction and and we are part of to go in a direction that He has asked us to go. So, All of that is the introduction to get us to make a very simple point for today, that the reality of the church, the group of people who are saved by Jesus Christ, the reality is we belong to somebody else. And we are just here, brothers and sisters, to steward in a good way a thing that belongs to God. And so today's message is meant to make essentially one main point. There's going to be three points that come out of that, but one main point that I want us to see, and that is to remind us whose church we're part of, to talk a little bit about who we are, that ultimately we are His and not our own. And I want to show you that with just several places throughout the New Testament where we talk about the church being the people who belong to God. Before you think of the word church to mean an organization or a structure or a building or even a specific congregation, we need to always think primarily in the simplest terms of the word church meaning a group of people. That's what that word meant in the original language. It meant a group of people. And in fact, it was so flexible to just be that unspecific that one time in the book of Acts, it's used to describe an angry mob who are about to lynch somebody, okay? It's, it's, like, it's like that. It just means a group of people. But when we talk about the church of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the group of people who belong to him. And so it's no surprise that throughout the New Testament, over and over again, you find the phrase, the church of God. And in one specific case, you find a phrase that says the church of Christ. In neither of those is it a title. It's not a name. It's not a formalized title for a group of congregations. I know it gets used that way in our world to describe a place or a building or an organization or a denomination or whatever you're talking about. But in the Bible, its main thought is that we are talking about a group of people. And those people belong to God. And so for our purposes today... We are talking about all of God's people, whether in this life or already in eternity, whether in this country or any other across this globe, we are talking about the group of all of God's people everywhere. And our main point today is very simple, patently simple, but it is that those people and that group belong to God, that we are the people of God, both of God the Father and God the Son. And this is what I want to show you with several passages that, I'm going to come, that are going to come up here in just a second. I did want to point out very quickly before I move away from this specific wording here that there's a reason I did not put that we are people of God the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is because it's just not used that way in the New Testament. 
When you talk about the Holy Spirit's role within God's people, he is very active and very important, but he has a different kind of role than the oversight that we are under with God the Father and God the Son. And so what I want to show you is those two roles and show you how much and how thoroughgoing the idea is that we belong to God. And so I'm going to read you way too many passages. I gave you all the references there in the study guide on the back of the family report. But I want to just show you all of them as quickly as I can this morning so that we can let this thought build and see the true importance of this as a guiding idea for who we are. I want us to look for things that show that it's all about God. And so we start with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that it was God. God's intent that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, the church, brothers and sisters, is all about God himself. You are here and you are part of this family because of God Himself. It's for His glory and by His will that this has come to be. And so just listen to how many times and how many ways Jesus and His apostles stated and restated the point that God is our all in all. We belong to Him. Here's the first one. Two chapters before this passage, when Paul talked about Jesus, he said God placed all things under His feet. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Once when Peter and Jesus were talking, Peter said, you are the Messiah, Jesus, and we believe that. And Jesus answered him, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He said the group belongs to him and nobody else. Paul, as he was talking about his past and his salvation in Christ, he told the Christians all over the region of Galatia that you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God. That means that it belongs to God and I tried to destroy it. It means that we belong to him. And then when Paul was closing out his long letter to the Christians in Rome, he told them all the churches of Christ send their greetings to you. All the ones who belong to Jesus. Now, was Paul naming a denomination right there? Absolutely not. What he's doing is describing a group of people. And it really is as simple as that. And so he's using a description that was readily available in his mind because that's how Christ and the apostles always thought of churches. Any group of Christians, that they belong to Jesus. They belong to God. They are His people. And then there are just so many times when the apostles were beginning their letters that they addressed them clearly to a group of people that they knew belonged to God. And so, Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people. First and Second Corinthians both begin by saying to the church of God in Corinth. And then Ephesians begins to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. 
When you get to Philippians, it opens the same way to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. And then Colossians does the same thing. It is written to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Why did Paul open up all of his letters? And it's not just Paul. There's one example from Peter that I'll show you in a few minutes. But why would he open up all of his letters with this type of description of who these people are? Well, it's because that's the way he always thought of these people. That they are God's people. They are Jesus' people. They belong not to themselves and certainly not to Paul, but to God. And we, brothers and sisters, have to learn to think of ourselves the same way. Now, can I just pause right here and make a slight corrective to something that I've heard plenty of Christians do in a way that I think is unfair to our brothers and sisters? And that is when we jump on another Christian for inviting somebody to come to church with us and we, see, we hear them use the phrase, hey, would you like to come to my church? Would you like to come to our church? And we jump on them and we go, it's not your church. It's Jesus's church. You can't call it your church because you don't own it. It's Jesus's church. Somebody has obviously done it to me in that exact tone. And I'm sorry about that. I'm sort of channeling them right now. And it was a little bitter, okay? But... Can I just say, I don't think it's wise for us to be too aggressive toward other Christians or to outsiders with that kind of rebuke. Because in the opening of one of his letters, Paul wrote, this is the letter to the church of who? Of the Thessalonians. Oh, interesting. And actually the second letter, he does the same thing. He says, this is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that Paul thought things were different in Thessalonica than they were everywhere else? Like everywhere else, you guys belong to Jesus, but Thessalonica, they're so good. They're just doing their own thing. They're forging their own path to heaven and they're good. That church belongs to them. No, not at all. What it means is that Paul recognizes that is their church because they belong in it, because they participate in it, because that is their church family. And brothers and sisters, that's the same for us. I know that I'm kind of sort of channeling too much aggression that is the way it was presented to me, and I'm sorry for that. But can we just kind of make sure we back all of that way down and just say, it is our church. You are my church, my church family. You are my group of people, and I'm part of your group of people. And if I want people to come and be part of this group of people, I'm going to invite them to my church, our church, because it is Jesus's church. And it's the same point, as I said, I promised we'd go to first Peter. Peter made the same point. He wrote his letter to God's elect, the exiles scattered throughout the provinces. Listen, all of these passages and many more besides show us that these two simple and profound truths define us. Number one, that the church means people. It is the people of God. And number two, when we say the people of God, we mean people who belong to God the Father and God the Son. The people around you today and all other Christians that you know, and this is especially true for the way that God's people think of their own congregations, the group that you're part of locally. That group, they do not belong to the elders or to the preacher or to whoever is the loudest and most forceful group in the group, or voice in the group, okay? They belong to God. The church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ's church, And we have to keep that in mind because it was him who said, on this rock, I will build my church. 
And so, we need this. We need to understand this. Number one, just for the sake of information. Correct, truthful information from God. We do need that. And number two, we need to understand it for the sake of its implication. And so let me show you three quick things that this ought to teach us that we are supposed to do as His people. First, First, because we are His, we serve Him. The fact that we are His church means that we do things His way and with a die-hard loyalty to His words. This is where the discussion of authority would probably open up. And if we were going to have two sermons today, that's the second one I would have preached. We'd have gone that direction to talk about how important it is to respect the authority of God. And when He tells us what to do, we do it. That's what the whole discussion of authority ultimately comes down to. We serve Him because we belong to Him. And knowing that He owns us also opens us up to have the proper humility before Him. Being humble and yet being happy about that. Not that we've been squashed by the power of God and our spirits have been dampened, but that we have been allowed to step into the presence of the Almighty God and not only that, to have a relationship with Him. And that brings a kind of humility that is also accompanied by joy, that we're glad to serve our God. And then it means that all we do is not for our glory, but only for His The psalmist opened number 115 with these words, Not unto us, O Lord, but not to us, but to Your name be the glory. And while these words, these following words here, are not from the New Testament, they are a worthy proclamation for any of God's people to make. This is a poem written in 1934 that says that that riffs on these words from the psalm. The poem says, Non nobis domine. It's Latin. Not unto us, O Lord, the praise or glory be of any deed or word. For in thy judgment lies to crown and bring to naught all knowledge or device that man has reached or wrought. And we confess our blame, how all too high we hold that noise which men call fame and the dross which men call gold. For these we undergo our hot and godless days, but in our hearts we know not unto us the praise. O power by whom we live, creator, judge, and friend, upholdingly forgive, and don't fail us at the end, but grant us well to see in all of our piteous ways, non nobis domine, not unto us the praise. The glory is His, brothers and sisters, for everything that we do. And so Paul's familiar words echo the sentiment of the poem when Paul said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or even imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We serve him because we belong to him. And that's our second one. Being part of the church, brothers and sisters, means that we're redeemed. And redemption means ownership, and ownership means loyalty. And so we fight under his banner, we live by his laws, we praise his greatness, and we wear his name. We wear his name in the very introduction of who we are, that we are Christians, and Christ's name is in that title, and it always has been. From the first people that were called Christians, it was because of Christ being in that name. 
And so we still wear it, and we wear it with the honor given to Him that is due. And that, that name being on us, that means an awful lot. It's kind of like the characters in Toy Story. You can tell what generation I grew up in. But anyway, it's kind of like the characters in Toy Story. One of the crucial things about that movie was that these toys had Andy's name written on them. What did that mean? It meant they belonged to him and they would never, ever fail to be there for Andy. It was loyalty. And the same concept is communicated in Revelation chapter 3. When the Lord said to the one who is victorious, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never leave it and I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down from heaven from my God and I also will write on them my own new name. He has written his name on us because we belong to him, not to ourselves. We were redeemed by Him. We are loyal to Him. We wear His name in place of our own both now and through all eternity because we are His. And third, this means that we love Him. In fact, it means that we love Him more than our own lives. I'm in Revelation now. This is Revelation chapter 12. This one's not on the screen, so if you want to look it up, you can join me there. Revelation chapter 12, I'm in verse 10, where the Apostle John writes of his experience with the risen Lord, and he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. They did not love their own lives so much that it would pull them away from death. They loved God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, who gave Himself for them, And who showed them by His love how to love others. This time I'm still near the end of the New Testament. I'm in 1 John chapter 4. Again, not on the screen. But 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete or is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus and there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, but we love because he first loved us. It was his love that made us his in the first place. Salvation brings us to Him as servants and as sons. And so we love Him with all of our being for His inexpressible gift. And that love is what will define us both in this life and in eternity. A truth from we kn- that we know from the passage that Gary read before I got up here. That though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and are filled with inexpressible joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
We are His, brothers and sisters. He is our Savior. And we are a royal priesthood to serve Him. He is the head, and we are His body. We wear His name. He is our hope. We are the sheep, and He is the shepherd. We are the living stones built up into a temple where He will be worshipped. We're the soldiers in His army, and we speak the oracles of Him. And one day, we leave this world behind to share in the joy of His home in heaven. We are His. We are the church of Jesus Christ. What is the most precious thing that belonged to someone else that you've ever been put in charge of? You could probably make a case that it's your role in the church of Jesus Christ. That is probably the most precious thing that you have been put in charge of because we are His and we dare not ruin the stewardship that we have been given over His things. Paul told our brothers and sisters in Corinth, you are not your own. You were bought at a high price. You are not your own. It's true for all Christians that we are not our own because we belong to Him. And so let's be sure that we love Him and serve Him because we are convinced and convicted that we belong to Him. 